Would you open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4? We'll be reading starting in verse 21 through verse 30, 34. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible from in front of you, and you can find Mark chapter 4 on page 839. So hear the word of God. Mark chapter 4, starting verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. Father, we do come this morning... Rejoicing. We do not rejoice in the strength of man or the the chariots of men or the strength of horses, but we come rejoicing in your word. Isaiah says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We rejoice in your word. By your word, you cause people to be born again. By your word, you strengthen our faith. By your word, you make us stand tall and strong. By your word, you preserve us. By your word, you will safely bring us into your kingdom forever. And so we hope in your word this morning. Father, we desire that by your spirit, you would do work this morning through your word. We have needs today. Father, as we look into our own hearts, our hearts are captivated by the things of this world, and we ask that you would do a spiritual surgery this morning, that you would set our eyes upon your glorious kingdom and the king of the kingdom. Father, we're we're tempted to despair. 
We don't see the progress of the kingdom. But Father, we ask that, that you would fix our eyes upon your kingdom, that you would lift up our eyes this morning through the preaching of your word, and that you, you might show us, you might show us the progress of the kingdom. Oh, Father, so often we're, we're those of little faith, and we pray this morning through your word, increase our faith. Father, I ask for your help this morning. Would you, would you pour out your spirit? Would you clothe me this morning so that I might preach as one who speaks the oracles of God? And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We keep going back to this verse, but this is the central verse in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. When Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, he said... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus said these words, when he preached this message, he wasn't speaking into a theological vacuum. Rather, Jesus in his preaching was addressing a people who had long thought hard about these words, the kingdom of God. He was addressing a people who wrote and read books about the coming of the kingdom, He was addressing a people who composed and sang songs about the coming of the kingdom. He was addressing a people who participated in festivals, anticipating the coming of the kingdom. And therefore, Jesus is preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, would have actually meant something to the people that Jesus was preaching to. And we can ask this morning, what would the coming of the kingdom meant for Israel? What were their books, their songs, their festivals telling them about this coming kingdom? Well, for Israel, the kingdom would have hovered around four key facets. We can boil it down to four things. First of all, Israel was looking forward to a mighty king who would rule on their behalf. Israel learned to sing this song, Psalm 2, and it says this, I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Israel's looking forward to a strong and conquering king. Second, Israel understood that the the kingdom of God would be accompanied by God's mighty salvation. A salvation event that would outstrip and outpace the splitting of the Red Sea, the the wilderness wanderings, the the ten plagues. And Israel learned to hope from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. They're looking for a greater Exodus event. Third, in the midst of this revitalized kingship and this great salvation event, the Lord would enter into a final judgment with all of his enemies. Israel would have clung to the hope found in Joel chapter 3, a blinding day of judgment. Israel would read and pour over these words. Let the nations stir themselves up and come. 
I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And all of these facets would lead to a fourth and final facet. When the dust would settle from the Lord's salvation and judgment, what emerges from the dust is a great and mighty kingdom that would exert its force over the entire world. No longer would Israel be a small and insignificant nation. No longer would the people of God be tossed around as a plaything by the strong nations of the earth. Israel clung to the hope found in Ezekiel chapter 17 that the Lord would turn this insignificant people into an unshakable and universal kingdom. Ezekiel says, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Israel is hoping in these texts, these songs. And so we can say this. Israel as a whole had clear expectations about the coming of the kingdom. They had a definite theology in place from their scriptures. But when they heard Jesus' preaching with their ears, and then when they watched Jesus' ministry with their eyes, they were confused. They heard from Jesus' lips, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And that they had these texts floating through their minds, but they questioned when they saw his ministry, where is the king? Where is salvation? Where is final judgment? Where is the unshakable and universal kingdom? And we can see the doubts rising up about Jesus in his proclamation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees heard Jesus' preaching. They observed his deeds, and so they came to him and asked him. They said, show us a sign from heaven. John the Baptist heard Jesus, and John the Baptist observed Jesus' actions. And John the Baptist doubted Jesus. He questioned. He said, are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? And Peter, one of the nearest and dearest disciples of Jesus, he heard Jesus' preaching, he observed Jesus, he watched Jesus, and he grew greatly troubled by what he saw in Jesus. His actions didn't match his proclamation. And so Peter rebuked Jesus to the face, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what's the problem here? Well, Israel heard Jesus' preaching, but they didn't see the signs of the kingdom. They didn't see mountains being leveled and valleys being filled in. They didn't see the great judgments of Yahweh being poured out on the nations. And they, all the more, they didn't see in Jesus this traveling preacher or in his band of merry men an unshakable kingdom. You can just look into these men's hearts. They're asking, where is the glory? Where is the might? Where is the power? Where is the kingdom? And so we can ask ourselves this morning as we think about this scenario in the Gospel of Mark, was was Israel misguided in singing these songs? Were they wrong in clinging to these texts? Were they wrong in participating in those, those festivals that prepared them and brought anticipation to their hearts about the coming of the kingdom? Well, the short answer is no. 
They were hoping in the right texts. They were singing the right songs. They were participating in the right festivals. In fact, each one of these texts we just quoted this morning and looked at, Psalm 2, Isaiah 40, Joel 3, Ezekiel 17, all of these texts are quoted and used by Mark in his gospel. These texts and these songs Mark, are, Mark is saying to us are essential for us to rightly understand Jesus and his kingdom. So Israel had the right texts. They had the right songs. But where did they go wrong? And we can illustrate this morning. One of my favorite TV shows, This Old House, there's a section of the show entitled, What Is It? And the premise of this part of the show is simple. An odd or rarely used or specialty tool is brought out, and the guys on the show, these tradesmen, experienced tradesmen, try to figure out what this tool is. And so these guys, they, they touch the tool, they examine the tool, they experiment with the tool, but almost always, they offer up a wrong answer, a wrong hypothesis of what this tool and what it's used for. And the point here is straightforward. You can handle a tool, you can use a tool, you can experiment with a tool, but unless you know what that tool is and why that tool was made and what that tool is made to do, unless you have this insight into this tool, you may never rightly know that tool or how it's supposed to be used. And we see this very thing going on in the gospel story. Israel, the scribes, John the Baptist, Peter, the disciples, have the right tools in their hands. They have the word of God, the promises of God, the prophecies in their hands. But they really don't know what to do with these tools that are in their hands or how these tools work or what they're made to do or what they look like. And we can take this whole thing a, a step deeper at root level, Israel's problem is not the scriptures that they hold in their hands. It's not Psalm 2 or Isaiah 40 or, or Joel 3 or Ezekiel 17, but their problem is their hearts. Because they are a faithless people, because they are a people without understanding, they can't appropriately handle the promises of God. Because of their stubbornness, they can't see the fulfillment of God in their midst through the ministry of Jesus. And we quoted this passage last week from Isaiah 1, but it still applies well. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. And so this morning we have the text, we have the songs of the kingdom before us. We've read Psalm 2, Isaiah 40, Joel 3, Ezekiel 17. We have the tools in our hands. But what do we do with them? What are they to mean to us? What are they to accomplish? What are they to look like in fulfillment? And the good news this morning is that we're not left to our own devices to try to figure out how to piece together these texts, to use these tools. We don't need to be left to experiment by ourselves or be left in the dark. Rather, Jesus comes alongside us in Mark chapter 4, and he, he tells us a bunch of parables, and his aim in these parables is to give us insight into these texts, into these tools. In Jesus' grace and mercy towards us, he desires that we would know the kingdom of God. Jesus says this in verse 26 of our text, the kingdom of God is as if... <clears throat> 
He again says in verse 30, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? So in Jesus in Mark chapter 4, he, he picks up the tool, and he carefully explains what the tool is. How did this be used and what it looks like when it comes in fulfillment? He gives us the insight that we need to use these texts well. And so this morning, instead of working through each one of these parables in our text separately, we're going we're gonna to take a more thematic approach to this passage of Scripture. And our aim is twofold as we look at these parables. First, we want to see how Jesus authoritatively reimagines the kingdom of God. And second, we want to see how this kingdom story bears down upon us as those who receive the kingdom and partake in the kingdom of God. And so the the first theme deals with the appearance of the kingdom of God in this present age. As we begin to look at the parables littered before us in chapter 4, a a theme begins to rise out of them. The theme of insignificance. Jesus discloses his own kingship, the reign of his father, through some very mundane and homely elements. Lamps, seeds, plants, harvests, sickles. None of these elements jump off of the page. None of these things in and of themselves seem very marvelous or glorious. And Jesus uses these metaphors for good reason. Their inconsequential nature reveals the present appearance of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' point is straightforward. The kingdom of God cannot be measured by the world's standards. It doesn't show up with a a flash or with a, a bang. It's not enshrined in glory or blazing light. The insignificant appearance of the kingdom is most clearly highlighted in the parable of the mustard seed. Look at verses 30 and 31. Jesus says this. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? It is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. These words just need to settle into us. Jesus is talking about his kingship the kingdom of God, the the rule and reign of the almighty God. Jesus' words are shocking, and they categorically rework the expectations of Israel. The conquering king of Psalm 2, the great salvation event of Isaiah 40, greater than the Exodus, the blinding judgment of Joel 3, the strong and mighty kingdom of Ezekiel 17, manifests itself in this present age like what? A grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Just as a small mustard seed can be overlooked, just as a small seed can easily be passed by and missed, so too the kingdom of God in this present age. The soaring hopes of Israel appear as nothing and inconsequential to those who stand outside of the kingdom. They don't see it, they don't get it. Now, this greatly helps us make sense of Jesus' ministry this morning. We have to assert that these parables are not abstract theology or philosophy, but they're intensely Christological, meaning they tell us about Jesus. When Jesus preaches these parables, he's not pointing up at the sky or, or pointing at someone else. He's referencing himself. He's pointing to himself, saying, this describes me. 
And so we can ask, how has the kingdom of God appeared in the gospel of Mark? Has it appeared with great fanfare or with a parade? No, the kingdom appears when Jesus appears. And how does Jesus appear? Well, he enters into the gospel of Mark with, with the greatest of humility. We first meet Jesus as he radically identifies himself with the people of God where? In the muddy Jordan River, he takes on the baptism of repentance. We can ask, has this kingdom arrived with great glory? No. Jesus is categorically rejected throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's rejected by the scribes, his family, even by some of his own disciples. And ultimately, in this story of the kingdom, we can cast our eyes forward to the end of Mark. How is the king of the kingdom enthroned? Is he seated on a chair of gold? No. He's nailed to a a tree. How does the king of the kingdom exert his power? Well, he exerts his power not with a sword in his hand, but by carrying a cross on his back. And how does this king of the kingdom subdue his enemies? Well, he subdues his enemies not with threats, but with cries of self-surrender. This king and his kingdom do not appear nor do they work like the other kingdoms of the world. They arrive in a hidden and veiled way. Jesus preaches a cross-shaped kingdom to us. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. And this mustard seed-like kingdom bears down upon us this morning. It changes the way we think about the kingdom and, and living in this kingdom. The kingdom of God does not confer wealth or glory on its citizens in the present age. It doesn't confer health or freedom in the present age, nor does it offer advancement or a life free from suffering or pain. Rather, those who inhabit the kingdom in the present age appear completely inconsequential in the world's eyes. Jesus details the marks of his kingdom in the gospel of Matthew. What does he say about his kingdom people? He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or as Luke says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what a kingdom person looks like, completely inconsequential in the world's eyes. And this kingdom, this mustard seed-like kingdom makes a distinct call upon us. It bids us to self-denial. Jesus calls us. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This kingdom calls us to loving service. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And this kingdom bids us to humility, Jesus says. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This brings us to a a second theme, the progress of the kingdom. 
So when Jesus is preaching, he announces the sure and certain news that the kingdom of God has arrived. We, we hear this when Jesus begins his ministry of preaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, emphasizing the fulfillment and the at-hand peace. And the parables that we have before us in chapter 4 point to this end. The light has come into the room. The seed of the kingdom has been planted. But this kingdom has come in a way that seems weak and fragile and inconsequential. The king of the kingdom does not begin his ministry in the city of power in Jerusalem where where kings go, but in the countryside of Galilee. Jesus does not gather powerful men around him, politicians or or men with deep pockets, but he gathers 12 very weak and imperfect men. And Mark does not hide the imperfections of the 12 from us. These men lack faith and understanding. They lack courage and bravery. We are eventually led in this story to the cross, the ultimate of weakness and frailty. And Mark has made it a point as he tells this story about Jesus to weave the theme of weakness and frailty. The theme, this theme led John the Baptist to doubt. It led Jesus' own disciples to doubt. And it can lead us to doubt as well. Will the kingdom promises come true? Is it possible that Psalm 2, Isaiah 40, Joel 3, Ezekiel 17 can come about through these humble means, these inconsequential means? These texts speak of great things. But what we see in the Gospel of Mark is humility. But Jesus assures us in these parables that the progress of the kingdom is inevitable. He reasons with our doubts in verses 26 through 28. He says this. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As we look into this parable, it's not remarkable for what it tells us about farming. Rather, what makes this parable in verses 26 through 28 is what it doesn't tell us about farming. Besides the sowing of the seed, what does the farmer contribute to the farming process? When we look at these three verses, he contributes nothing. We don't find him weeding his field. We don't find him fertilizing his plants. We don't find him watering his plants. Rather, Jesus says, he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So what then is the cause of this growth? Well, Jesus points his finger. He says, the earth produces itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And the glorious truth that Jesus uncovers for us here is that the kingdom of God is not dependent upon any human effort. The frailty and the faithlessness of the twelve do not endanger the kingdom of God. The appearing weakness of the kingdom will not impede its inevitable conquest. Jesus calls us here. We must remember that this is the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. God will see to his kingdom. God will cause its growth. He will see to its flourishing. George Eldon Ladd has written a book on the kingdom of God. He's now dead, but he has this powerful paragraph on how radically God-dependent the kingdom of God is. And he says this about the kingdom. 
The kingdom can draw near to men. The kingdom can come, arrive, appear, be active. God can give the kingdom to men, but men do not give the kingdom to one another. Further, God can take the kingdom away from men, but men do not take it away from one another, although they can prevent others from entering it. Men can enter the kingdom, but they are never said to erect the kingdom or to build the kingdom. Men can receive the kingdom, inherit the kingdom, possess the kingdom, but they are never said to establish the kingdom. Men can reject the kingdom or enter the kingdom, but they cannot destroy the kingdom. They can look for the kingdom, pray for the kingdom's coming, seek the kingdom, but they cannot bring the kingdom. Men may be in the kingdom, but they do not grow the kingdom. Men can do things for the sake of the kingdom, but they are said not to act upon the kingdom itself. Men can preach the kingdom, but only God can give the kingdom to men. Jesus reassures our hearts this morning as he's telling this parable to us. That which seems inconsequential, weak, and benign in the world's eyes is treasured and accompanied with the power of God. And Jesus calls out to our souls this morning, though this kingdom is marked in this present age with with weakness and suffering and with cross, he says to us, take confidence. This kingdom does not rest in the ability or the strength of men, but it rests in God. Jesus speaks plainly to us, my kingdom and its glorious promises do not lie in the hands of frail and feeble men, rather it lies firmly in the hand of God, whose name is Almighty. And Jesus speaks wonderful good news to us. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. This brings us to our third theme this morning, the consummation of the the kingdom. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 32. Yet when it, the mustard seed, is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What is Jesus talking about? According to the Lord Jesus, history is not an endless cycle of growing seasons. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Again and again and again. Rather, according to Jesus, history is linear. It is moving towards a definitive end, a great harvest that will end all harvest. The seed that is planted will grow up, and ultimately there will be one final harvest. The mustard seed will eventually become larger than all of the garden plants. The light that is hidden will eventually be revealed in full disclosure. And the truth is that even though we can't see with clarity the fullness of the kingdom of today, Jesus is preaching through these parables that there is a definite tomorrow when we will. Jesus is preaching history will find its ends. And the parables work towards this end. They reveal the future fullness of the kingdom and they work hope and confidence as we hear these parables. And these parables give us fresh perspective on our kingdom texts of Psalm 2. 
Isaiah 40, Joel 3, Ezekiel 17. Though the mighty king of Psalm 2 is yet hidden today, this king of great power, this king who will rule over the nations, Jesus is saying through these parables, there is a tomorrow when his glory shall be fully unveiled and all flesh shall see it. He says, he speaks of himself in his coming day. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And though the great salvation event of Isaiah 40, even greater than the Exodus, yet remains hidden in our day, there is a tomorrow, tomorrow, Jesus tells us, when according to the Apostle Paul, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and we will sing with all the saints, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And though the blinding judgment of Joel 3 still stands imperceptible to us today, Jesus preaches to us through these parables that we are winding down towards a definitive tomorrow. When the great white throne of judgment will appear. A tomorrow when earth and sky will flee from the presence of him who is seated upon the throne. A tomorrow when the dead, both great and small, will stand before this throne. A tomorrow when the books will be opened up and all will be judged by what is found in those books. And though the unshakable and universal kingdom of of Ezekiel 17 seems to be just a dim reality today, a reality shrouded in weakness and frailty, suffering and cross, Jesus preaches in these parables, there is a definite tomorrow, a tomorrow when Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power so that God may be all in all. A tomorrow when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A tomorrow when nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. A tomorrow when God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A tomorrow when we shall see our Savior face to face and his name will be written across our foreheads. A tomorrow when we will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. And these parables point us. The parable of the lamp, the parable of the seed growing, the parable of the mustard seed point us towards tomorrow. The king will appear, salvation will be disclosed, judgment will be met, and the kingdom, God will be all in all. And Jesus says to us this morning, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? Jesus, by his grace, announces that the lamp has come, the mustard seed has been sown, the plant is indeed growing. And the question this morning as we close is this, what shall we do with the word of the kingdom? For it is today, tomorrow has not yet come. Well, Jesus calls us to urgency. He says this. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is saying this to us. He's saying, dear brothers and sisters, 
What you do with the word of the kingdom will carry into all of eternity. What you do today matters for the eternal tomorrow. Do you have any knowledge in the kingdom? Do you have any love for the kingdom? Do you have any joy in the kingdom? Do you have any peace in the kingdom? Do you have any faith in the kingdom today? It does not matter how small it is, but know this, it will be multiplied beyond expression in the age to come. Jesus promises us today, for to the one who has more will be given. But Jesus also gives us a warning today. He says, take heed. And the principle is this, you cannot multiply zero. If you have no knowledge in the kingdom, if you have no love in the kingdom, if you have no joy in the kingdom or peace or faith in the kingdom today, you shall never have any in the forever tomorrow. What you do today, how you listen today, matters for the eternal tomorrow. Jesus says to us, and he warns us, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And Jesus looks us squarely in the eye when he says these words, take heed, take heed to how you listen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice this morning in your word. It is good. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus, that by his grace he comes and he ministers to us and he explains, he desires that we would know the kingdom, that we would be able to take these texts in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, Isaiah 40, Joel 3, Ezekiel 17, and bring them to bear upon our hearts and see their fulfillment even in the present day and to lead us into hope for the coming future. Oh, Father, we desire to listen to your word. Oh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We long for the coming tomorrow. Would you build our faith now, we pray in Jesus' name.